who never buzz up to somebody's apartment by saying, open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. There are men who never suggest to an anxious friend that they should sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Bost, two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special grown-ass guests, Sam Mastandrea, Dave Baumler, and Julian Darius. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Grown-Ass Men. You know, it's funny because there's so many interesting shows to discuss that we haven't talked about, but instead we're going to talk about the most obscure, weird comic in Marvel history, instead of all the things that are on TV. Yeah. One that is completely out of print and unavailable to most of the known comic nerds. You have to really seek it out to find what we're going to talk about today, as opposed to Wakanda Forever, which is going to be in every multiplex. Why are we here today? Here we are here because I think you and I said if we ever started a band, Adam, we would have to call it Kirby Crackle. (laughs) (laughs) And because if I ever got like a really big tattoo, it would be of of two jacks, like two playing cards, and and one card would have Kerouac on it, and the other one would have Jack Kirby. I like it. And since since this isn't a literary podcast. Are you saying you don't have that tattoo already? (laughs) (laughs) No, we're here to discuss Jack Kirby's legendary run on 2001 Space Odyssey. In 1976, a full eight years after the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, Jack Kirby decided to make a Treasury Edition adaptation of the movie. And then from that Treasury Edition, he started a series that he he wrote and did all the art. Yeah. And it ended up only going for 10 issues. And I've known about this series forever. And I, I had some issues of it when I was a kid. And I've certainly looked at the Treasury edition, the adaptation of the movie, because the movie is one of my favorite movies. But I was interested in Kirby's adaptation because I saw this book, which is called the weirdest sci-fi comic ever made. (laughs) And it's about Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Get out! So this guy wrote a whole book, the the mysterious and hard to um, get in touch with, Julian Darius. It's it's like a long essay and very well thought out and researched about how insane Kirby's adaptation of the movie is. And it's just. Well, are we talking about the Treasury edition right now, or are we talking about the after the Treasury? His book is about both. I think his book would say that the 10 issue uh, series is crazier than the Treasury edition. 
Oh, the yeah. The edition is just an adaptation, but yeah. he breaks down the Treasury edition in a really interesting way, too. Does he mention? I remember bought, I bought the Treasury when it came out. I may still have it. I'm, I'm not sure. I have to look it up. And I think I might have issue one of the comic. But for me, it was just looking at it. It was so opaque. You know, I couldn't understand yeah. what the hell was going on. <laughs> and then I re glanced at one through 10. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's, so, it's impossible to know what the hell he's talking about in there. It's so ver- so much verbiage. I mean, yep. the art is unbelievable as usual, but like <laughs> it's just you don't know what is going on. So his the, the Treasury edition, wasn't that kind of one of the inaugural things he did when he came back to Marvel? I think he did that before jumping onto all the. Or unless he was doing it concurrently, like all the Captain America and the Mad Bomb and blah, 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 and all that stuff. I think he did it right around the same time, because also in 1976, he did the Bicentennial Bicentennial Treasury Edition for Captain America, which it's one of the few Treasury Editions that's all original. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the stuff is collected. But before we get into breaking down the comic... Let's talk a little bit about the movie. And I actually asked a friend who is also an expert to talk a little bit about 2001, A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick movie, and what it's all about, what it means, because I I love it. David Baumler, welcome to Grown-Ass Men. Welcome back to Grown-Ass Men is what I should say. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back. We're bringing you back because... Uh, many a time, you and I have discussed uh, movies in general, Stanley Kubrick movies in particular, and 2001 in particular. Yes. And that is uh, the subject of this episode of Grown-Ass Men, but it's a little different. We're actually talking about not just 2001, but we're talking about the Jack Kirby adaptation. <laughs> so first of all, let me just ask you, have you ever read it? I have never read it, but when you told me about it, I did some research and I watched a few folks who sort of paged through it and have talked about it. And But I was uh, in the 80s. I, I did like Machine Man, which I did not know was, you know, the lineage to the 2001 Jack Kirby comic book. So that, that was new to me. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Well, I have to tell you that I got this book oh, right. called The Weirdest Sci-Fi Comic Ever Made. He breaks down just how weird the Kirby 2001 is. And I loved it. Oh, cool. His whole thing is basically, why? Why would Jack Kirby be interested in this material at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, he is a master at drawing those space scenes, you know, with the crazy galaxies. I mean, maybe that was the idea at, at Marvel at the time is... It's got space. Kirby's got to do it, you know. Have you ever read, I have my own book to to mention, have you ever read this book? No. About the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Space by Odyssey Michael by Benson. Michael Benson? Yeah. It is the definitive book about the production of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And if you're interested in the movie at all, uh, it is a must, must read uh, it's fascinating. The production war stories are unbelievable. You learn so much about what Kubrick and Clark knew going in 
and what they sort of learned along the way. There were all these critical moments of the plot that were really figured out on the fly, sometimes by the actors themselves. Gary Lockwood, he's Frank Poole in the movie, so he's the other um, astronaut with Kirdulay who you know gets who who gets killed by Hal. Spoiler alert, he gets killed. It was Gary Lockwood who came up with the whole idea that Kirdulay and he would go into the pod and they would be talking clandestinely about Hal, and Hal would be reading their lips. Because he didn't like how it was written in the script. In the script, it was all the people on Earth were transmitting, like, Hal is having these problems, and they're, you know, and so, like, it was all delivered to Keir DeLay and, and, and uh, Gary Lockwood's characters. And so they were about to shoot the scene, and he just said, you know, I this scene sucks. You know, like Kubrick said, like, oh, you don't seem like your energetic self today, Gary. And and Gary tells this like really funny story about, you know, like it, you'd have to kind of read it in the book, but he basically tells Kubrick, I think this scene sucks. And Kubrick just goes, that's a wrap for today at 11 a.m. And everybody's like, oh, shit, you know? And so everybody goes back to their you know, respective trailers and everything. And Gary Lockwood thinks like, oh, I'm fired. Because he really believed in the movie a lot. He thought it was one of the greatest films that was ever going to be made. And so he was telling Kubrick, in in essence, like, I don't want to screw up this movie by like this kind of ham-fisted way of telling how Hal is breaking down. There's got to be a better way. So then Kubrick brings him you know, into his office. And instead of firing him, he says, look, what you know, what are your ideas? He says, I'm going to give you, I know you like... Uh, deli food. I'm going to send you the best bagels and locks that uh, you know England can provide. I want you to go back home. I want you to write in your journal. I want you to come back with the idea of how to fix the scene. And like that's like the critical part of that section a of the huge film. Part of that movie. Yeah. I mean, what you remember like three or four things about it, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So it's it's great that Kubrick was open to because he's always looked at as this perfectionist and this. Uh, director who sort of have has everything figured out to the you know storyboard frame, but he was it sounded like many times on the you know in the production he was open to people suggesting ideas, uh, you know, and which were then incorporated into the movie. The explosive bolts, yeah, it's amazing. One of the things that I was hoping to talk to you about is the famously ambiguous ending of mm. two thousand and one was actually explained by Kubrick, mm. I think, in an interview with Japanese journalists, right? Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, Clark went on to write several other sequels, and Clark was always pretty explicit about the Star Child and what it meant, and, um, you know, and then when they did the 2010, you know, it's sort of even, you know, sort of further explained. Kubrick just wanted to keep the movie as open-ended as possible so that people could, I mean, you got to think of how much dialogue there is in, in 2001, the movie. It's like so sparse. Uh, and that's something that I think is funny with the Kirby edition that he went back to Clark and Kubrick's book and he also went back to other versions of the script. And that's how he ended up with a lot of that extra dialogue that isn't in the film. But, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, from what I remember you know, of that sequence, you know, um, Keir Delay's character is brought into this zoo, right, the, where the alien intelligence is sort of watching him. 
and they're sort of making him comfortable in this French, uh, <laughs> this French uh, uh, Louis the Sixteenth style room with a glowing floor. Uh, and then, you know, he keeps aging and aging. You don't know if if this is real time or what. It was Kirdulay though who decided to knock over the glass. That was another on set thing where it was just supposed to be that Kirdulay looks up and sees the monolith in the in the room. But uh, Kirley said to Kubrick, well, I think there should be a reason why I'm looking down and then looking up. And so they did the thing where he knocks over the glass to kind of draw his attention down and then up. But then, you know, the monolith has, you know, at each point in the story, you know, provides this leap to the next phase of humanity, you know, from ape to, you know, ape with tools and from astronauts to astronauts who can suddenly get all the way to Jupiter. Uh, and then I... You know, I think that when Kirley encounters the monolith again, he is, uh, you know, leaps into this next phase of consciousness, which is this star child, new or what Kirby calls new seed, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that that is sort of, you know, outside of humanity or is like a consciousness sort of beyond humanity. So I, you know, I don't think it's it doesn't seem that, um, that crazy to me of an ending. It seems like it it makes a lot of sense if you are following that narrative but i you know it is open to anybody's interpretation what that means yeah you have to figure it out on your own you have to come to a lot of it on your own and that's what makes it challenging and exciting for so many people yeah for sure because what did you think of the ending when you when you saw it i i was so confused by it for many viewings it's kind of like an accelerated trip through Kirdulea's the rest of his life mm-hmm, right. until he f- transforms into this other thing. Yeah. Um, the whole ending where he's in that <laughs> French hotel room or whatever it is, that apartment, <laughs> right. is great. But after you've gone through the whole tunnel sequence. The Stargate. The yeah, Stargate. It's yeah. just you're ready for anything at that point. It's yeah. so wonderful and so, you know, just phantasmagoric and visual. So my dad took me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey when I was 10, uh, which is pretty amazing that, like, that he would think a 10-year-old would appreciate it. But then um, when my son turned 10, it was the 50th anniversary, and they played it on an IMAX. And so I got to, like, sort of echo this thing that had happened to me. And my son totally dug it. I thought like he would be bored out of his skull because, you know, it is a slow paced film, but he still to this day, four years later, talks about it, says it's his favorite film. So, you know, it's there's something about that movie and probably the ambiguity of that ending. Do you feel like it's really one of your favorite movies? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's a movie that I can go back to a lot. I've never tried to watch it on television because I just feel like you need your full attention or else it's just going to, you know, it is slow. I mean, it's, you know, could be very boring to people if you're just kind of like could check your phone or could do something else. But there is one thing that I that I do think is really interesting about the fact that Kirby did a comic book or that Marvel wanted to do a, a comic book. And I think it's the, the craziest thing is, you know, like a lot of things in film don't translate to a comic book form and vice versa, right? But there's such an audio component to 2001 a space odyssey that it's almost like a big fuck you 
to to the film to to try to put it in a form where that audio can't you know the the film as most most people usually think that the movie starts out with the shot of the earth and the the sun coming up with the bomb 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 but really it starts with almost 4 minutes of just a uh like an avant-garde orchestral piece by this Polish composer before anything happens a black screen and you're just hearing these it almost sounds like an orchestra tuning up that's the kind of like a theory that's called atmospheres and that really sets the mood it's an audio experience as much as it is as it is visual and then of course you then go into that sequence with the with the sun and the uh, and the earth and then you know the blue Daniel waltz that whole sequence where you just hear Kirdule breathing and his helmet uh, you know you just can't get you just can't get 2001 without sound. The one thing that I that I really took away from the book, the the author sort of puts this quote at the very end that Kubrick wrote about the film Orpheus that, that Jean Cocteau did. And in the film Orpheus, you know, Orpheus the poet uh, is is asking what what do people expect of him? What do the muses or the gods expect of him? And they they reply, astonish us. And Kubrick basically says, you know, what modern art really astonishes us that you would actually think to yourself, wow, one person couldn't have created this. And I think that that was his mission in 2001 to make a film so audacious that people were like, well, no one person could have thought of all this or have come up with this amazing piece of art. Uh, and I think it delivers, you know, it's a to think. I mean, I know a lot of people worked on it. And like I said, like a lot of people contributed along the way, but he was the the person who kept that idea going and 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 forced people to to think about doing things that had never been done before. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on and uh, elevating Absolutely. the discussion <laughs> or lowering it. <laughs> we'll, no, we'll find we a back, lowered it. We'll find a back. Part. We'll find a back door to the <laughs> to lowering it. <laughs> it was great to have Dave Baumler back on the show. He's got his own podcast, by the way, the Movie Pitch Challenge, which is really fun. Now. Let's get back to the 2001 comics. It's so easy to see why Jack Kirby would be interested in that. That's so much his wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. That's his thing. He's doing it before the movie. Yep. Here's what I find interesting about this book, the weirdest sci-fi comic ever made. It is understandable why you would think sort of on paper it would make sense for... Kirby to adapt that movie. But when you look at it, really, I have trouble figuring out what the hell appealed to Jack Kirby about this movie that he was trying to recreate. Because the sort of simple, super clean look of the movie, that's not his style at all. Did he come up with the idea? Was it his idea to want to do that? Or did somebody say, hey, Jack, we got a good idea for you? <laughs> well, that's the big question, right? What I had read, though, was that he wanted to do that. And then Marvel found that it had some success, the Treasury Edition, and told him, would you please do a series? And he didn't want to do the series. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. Well, the series is crazy. I mean, because it, it doesn't really have to do with the movie very much, like, the movie is all this, it's like an existential thing, you know, and his comic book adaptation is not at all an existential exploration. And it's not like the movie has this very famous, you know, ambiguous ending. 
And he takes all that ambiguity out of it by putting word balloons on every single panel that explain to you exactly what he thinks is happening. And he's also not very interested in how the computer. Yeah, he he definitely yeah. heavily heavy handed. Does even the Dave like uh, dismantling Hal or whatever he kind of. Um, it's very heavy handed. Was he really just interested in the ape men and apes? Because when he gets that, then he does this adaptation. The first few issues are just about. <laughs> they're they're really about apes and savages who become yeah. spacemen. Well, yeah. Somebody I, I, there was something I read somewhere because I was researching the series because I, I didn't get a chance to read through all of it again, and they said that they kind of kept to a formula because they didn't know if they would own the rights to any characters moving forward or who would own whatever characters in the series. Okay. That they kind of made a formula like apes. And then man, you, you know what I mean? But they kept, he kept doing that. He was like, all right, I'm going to throw something new into the, into the works that wasn't in, you know, a, a part of the, the movies. World. Okay. So that makes sense. He, so he's making this adaptation in the way he did because of like constraints that Marvel was putting on him at the time. And initially, that's what I read. I mean, and it seems it seems to make sense because, like, I even just visually looked through a couple of the the comics, the uh, the series, and I was like, yeah, it seems to have like a pattern. And then it, that pattern breaks. What I didn't get a chance to and really wanted to read issues five and six are supposed to be like this one cool kind of standalone story. It gets a little meta in that it's he's kind of deconstructing comic heroes. It. But it, like the first three issues are one story, and then the next couple of issues are another story, and then he does a totally different thing and invents Machine Man. He's trying all these different things to the point where he breaks the fourth wall of the Marvel universe. Yeah, yeah. and people start talking about Marvel comics. They're like, "Well, it's not like it's a Marvel comics character." And so, so this is a world where Marvel comics characters exist but only in comics and there are no real superheroes. And then later <laughs> machine man becomes part of the Marvel universe. So it's right. It's just really all over the place. It's absolutely <laughs> incredible. Yeah. But like, I can't read his dialogue. I just can't get through it. I don't know. Well, there must be people who love it, but I just never could get. Next. It's also really ironic because the film is kind of like, you know, dialogue written by like uh, Harpo Marx or, uh, you know, like it's very minimal. I mean, <laughs> talk about a very, very uh, contemporary uh, uh, an analogy there. But um, his stuff is like, you know, Robin Williams on crack writing dialogue. You know, it's just <laughs> like one thing is so sparse and visual. And then K Kirby kicks ass with these visuals. But. But man, it, there's a lot. There's a lot to read. Well, what, so what do you think is the most successful part of of uh, Kirby's adaptation of 2001? The big giant splash pages that just blow your gourd. <laughs> exactly, I, I fully agree. And the art, you know, in in issue seven, there's some space art that is just like, whoa! It is. Just, really blew me out i was like this is so good Even nobody now. does this kind of thing better than he does yeah he's been doing it his whole you know modern career you know he's doing it in ff in the 1966 you know but it's like it's just always good it's always amazing you know 
love looking at that stuff. Yeah. His energy, like uh, that's the thing that still always resonates when you look at his stuff, especially when you compare it against what was going on at DC or maybe with some other artists, man, the stuff just leaps at you off the page. You know, it, it, it has any good art, you know, writing or whatever, like it, it has energy will, will be compelling. And man, he just has that spades. So obviously we had a great time talking about the comic book version of 2001. We talked with Dave, we talked with Sam. And then just when Adam and I thought we had reached a dead end in contacting another authority on the subject, we received a phone number for the guy who got us interested in this whole topic in the first place. Hello, please state your name after the tone and Google Voice will try to connect you. Grown ass men. Hello? The author of the weirdest sci-fi comic ever made and a man whose name itself sounds like possibly a moon of Jupiter or Saturn, Julian Darius. (laughs) Hey Adam, how's it going? Good, good. I was just in Hawaii, like a few months ago. I should have stayed. You have your own publishing company. Yeah, I've got a a couple. They're uh, small mom-and-pop operations, but, I mean, the first is Sequart that published his book and did uh, a bunch of uh, documentary films um, as well. And then also uh, Martian Lit, which publishes comics. And do you write comics as well as the kind of essays and, and analysis? I do. Yeah, they're mostly science fiction. Um, and it was really, you know, just, I mean, I've written comics my whole life, but it was really just my friendships with uh, other people that kind of got me to, you know, get off my butt and finally do that after 20 years. But I've been scripting comics since I was a teenager. That's great. Just never doing much with them. I think that I first saw your book mentioned by somebody on Instagram when they were talking about uh, Jack Kirby and they posted a picture of it. And it's called, for, you know, people who haven't seen it, it's called the weirdest sci-fi comic ever made, and uh, it's fantastic. And I had to get it immediately. What inspired you to um, to to write this? Well, exactly what you're saying—that it's sort of so bizarre. Um, and obviously, that you know, the title is you know quite a claim. But for me, it's sort of true that it manages to combine all, Kirby at this weird point where he's done uh, the first fourth world, and he's working on the Eternals, and, you know, so he's really into this cosmic stuff, and he's tapping into a celebrated, venerated classic film, and just going, like, full-on Kirby all over it in this weird combination that just starts strikes me as utterly bizarre and utterly kind of, like, high culture plus pop culture in this really weird way. Well, what I, one of the things that I loved about your uh, book is that I was aware of the comic. I didn't, you know, I, I, I'd read a couple of issues, but I hadn't paid that much attention to it when it was out. And it had never occurred to me to really look at how off it is, how <laughs> wrong it is 
when you compare it to the source material. And that's what I think you did so well in the book is you, you didn't take anything for granted. You just sort of said, why? Why would this be made? <laughs> Can you give us an example of what you think is, is so mismatched about Kirby's style versus the source material? Well, Kirby is so bombastic. Um, and right away, from the beginning, um, you get you know Kirby sort of like imitating the time jumps of the movie as if that's like, is this an anthology series that's about the time jumps? Like, you know, it, it's sort of bizarre. But probably the weirdest thing is thinking that the Star Baby at the end of 2001 is some literal superhero character. just <laughs> like fly, flying around, uh, you know, flying around having adventures. Like, I mean, I, I don't know how Kirby's brain, like, watched that sequence and said, like, I want, I want to write the stories of that, that star baby being an omnipotent god. Or, or did he just not care and just say, like, how do I continue that story? Well, the adventures of star baby and platypus or something, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's so bizarre. Well, I love your idea that maybe, you know, because he keeps, in, as he expands on the story and uh, has, you know, issue after issue, he keeps creating more star babies that go off into, it's almost like you say, like he's creating a super team of star babies. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can kind of see how that might appeal to him from the sort of like new gods, eternal sort of thing, except obviously he didn't come up with it. I mean, it's sort of like asking, uh, you know, Kirby to look at an impressionistic painting and turn it into an action series or something. It's, you know, it's like, I guess that's one of his weird, you know, empowered, superpower gods characters, but it looks like it's from a different world than his. You know, obviously, the comics industry we know doesn't exist without Kirby. There's no taking away from that man. At the same time, you know, we have to admit there were some real clunkers along the way and real <laughs> daft ideas. You know, I think so much of this is from the training. Like, Kirby came out of a culture in which he was just expected to produce. And that style changed over time, but the expectation that you would have a caption explaining, like, what the, you know, chimps are doing to the monolith, you know, uh, which just strikes me as so wrong in so many ways, uh, the need to explain this, you know, is, is obviously a, a deeply ingrained thing in Kirby's brain, right? Like, you have to have these captions. This is just how the medium works. I've done this. Nobody knows comics more than me. This is how the medium works. <laughs> One of the things I love about your book is that as you go further and further into, you know, it's it's a 10-issue series, and you get into issues 5, 6, then when you get to, like, 7, 8, 9, you're almost incredulous as the writer. You're... you're you can't believe that he's doing the things that he's doing, breaking the fourth wall. It, it just doesn't, it make, doesn't make sense on so many levels for you. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, but I, I do sort of love how wrong it is. You know, uh, Harold Bloom has that uh, theory of anxiety of influence where it, it's better to be sort of strongly wrong than, you know, sort of safely right in some cases, and a lot of what we love about art is art that was wrong, is art that broke the mold, that did what you weren't supposed to do. And Kirby is so willing to do that, and yet sometimes it's just wrong. No, this is just, you know, ill-advised. <laughs> <laughs> that was a question that I wanted to ask you. You're so good in the book at looking at what 
Kirby did with that comic as kind of his own creative choice. He makes different choices all the time. He like reinvents the comic over and over. But how much do you think there were corporate pressures on him to do something more successful or to do something different versus this is just what Jack wanted to do? I don't know, but reading it, do you detect any sense of corporate pressures whatsoever? I mean, you know, I, I don't can't imagine if, if anything was a product of, you know, uh, corporate pressure, what it would have been. I mean, more star babies, please. Like, you know, what, what's the notes being passed to Jack there? I, I just can't imagine what those notes would have been. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think is the most successful part of what Kirby did with 2001? I have two answers to that. The first, I think, is the adaptation. Because the adaptation, Kirby has to stick to the script, right? There's still things that are are awkward or, or bad in there. But, you know, Kirby was a great visual storyteller, and he also was just a great artist. Uh, his use of space and his use of uh, panel dimensions to echo the film really does things that the film can't do, right? So we don't, we rarely see in film a change of aspect ratio just because, you know, this is a sequence that's very tall, right? Um, we usually don't see, you know, just a thin little strip in the middle of the screen because that's what suits that image best. In comics, we see that all the time. And Kirby takes advantage of that, and that really makes an impression on me, just the sort of visual feast of that treasury, with all the more because it's in treasury size. And then second, it's that, it's that issues five and six that are sort of um, where he's sort of trying to find a voice that can exist in this world but still be him. And I think in a lot of ways, he ends up writing a critique of superhero comics and a critique of the way superhero comics plays on our dreams in a way that uh, I think is really strong and that we don't usually associate with Kirby. It almost feels like kind of like a Philip K. Dick story in those issues. Like it's really unusual for him and really, I agree, it's really well done. Yeah, Kirby wasn't, that's a very good comparison. You know, Kirby wasn't known for um, that sort of Matrix rug pull of like, you know, none of this is real, you know. It's like, no, there really is a uh, titan the size of a, a planet, you know, uh, standing in Manhattan. So Kirby is a literalist in general. And so I agree with you about sort of very sort of Philip K. Dickish sort of material. And it's also, you know, critical of superhero fans. It's critical of the industry. And certainly we know Kirby had those feelings, but usually there wasn't a way for him to vent that without sounding bitter. And I think that this comes out and sounds interesting rather than bitter. Julian Darius, thank you so much for talking to us. And if people want to get any of your books, including the weirdest sci-fi comic ever made, they should go to sequart.org, right? Is that the best way? Yeah, sequart.org. It has all of the... uh, nonfiction about comics. And I'm always working on stories out of time and space. My podcast uh, with my friend Scott about um, sci-fi movies. That's a fun podcast. I've been listening. And then I'm, uh, you know, in my day job teaching uh, writing in French at a couple uh, universities here in Hawaii. So if anyone wants to take an online French course uh, and then talk to me afterwards about science fiction comics, uh, I'm game. (laughs) 
Once again, thanks so much. Real pleasure. Okay, peace. Have a great day. Bye. So I had one more thought. After talking with everybody, it was really cool to meet Julian. After talking with everybody about the movie and about the comic book, I watched the movie again. And watching it, I couldn't help think about myself and my own life because it's got this kind of first-person quality to it. And even though it's a sci-fi movie about apes and astronauts, it's the kind of art that, for me, kind of gives me time to think and ask questions. And I think every person's experience of the movie is probably different because it's that kind of art. Kubrick um, wanted the movie to be uh, felt, I think this is like a quote, that at an inner level of consciousness, just like music does. You know, so he wasn't trying for this literal, he was trying for this like, yeah, that just sort of, you, you feel it internally, but maybe you don't kind of like analyze it and, and or, or it, it makes perfect sense to you. So my one more thought about this is maybe what Jack Kirby did in his adaptation is exactly what the movie does to everybody. Maybe 2001 made Kirby see where his own life and his own interests intersect with the huge epic questions that the movie asks. And, you know, I answered them one way, but when he answered those questions on the page, they ended up including all the things he did in comics his whole life with a lot of Kirby Crackle and Machine Man. And in that way, maybe Jack Kirby's weird all over the place evolution of 2001 A Space Odyssey makes total sense. I mean, it really reminds me of like Tales of Asgard, you know, like if you yeah. had just changed some of the the uh, the dialogue, it could have been in one of those. Totally. You know? Totally. Just looks the same. I mean, when he draws those great space things with like the ships or whatever, there's nothing like it. I do recommend Julian Darius's his book, The Weirdest Sci-Fi Comic Ever Made. You can uh, you can find it on Amazon. I recommend listen, uh, you're listening to Ground Control Major Tom. That's what you should listen to when you're thinking about Space Odyssey. Or Odyssey. 2001, A Space Oddity, as Adam likes to say. Yeah, right. I mean, Bowie and Jack Kirby. Ah. What's happening with that duo? That's a partnership. That might be your department now, Adam. You now have to figure out what that collaboration is. Well, that's going to be a song in this that's episode. Yeah, yeah. The, the Jack Kirby, uh, David Bowie mini opera.
Thanks again to David Baumler, Julian Darius, and of course, Sam Mastandrea. This was episode 99 of Grown Ass Men. Can you believe that? Grown Ass Men.